welcome to our Sport Feels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We're your hosts. I'm Megan. And I'm Scott. Welcome to Sport Feels Life. Today, we are talking to Sean Swarner. Sean carries the essence of Sport Feels Life with him every day. Surviving two terminal cancers before graduating high school, Sean is best known for becoming the only person in history to climb the highest mountain on every continent. To trek to both the North and the South Pole. And compete in the Hawaii Ironman, all with one lung. In this podcast, we will dive deep into the personal growth that Sean experienced while overcoming incredible odds. Yeah, Sean, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We know that it's a little bit earlier for you, so we really appreciate your time and you getting up and Adam nice and early to chat with us in Sport Fuel's life and share your story with us. Uh, it's an honor. It's, you know, well, I was a swimmer for so many years. It was, you know, up on, up on deck in the water at 6 a.m., so it's, it's become a habit getting up early in the morning. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, what haven't you done? You. <laughs> So you've done pole vaulting. You have been a swimmer, um, climb mountains. Let's see. My favorite was actually the 800. I did that uh, in high school. Um, actually, and I'm sure we'll get to it, but I, I ran the 800 a year after I was placed in remission and won my league's high school track meet with a 156 with one lung. So that, that wasn't too shabby. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I still have records um, in swimming. Wow. From when I was... 14 years old, I think. So a long time ago, but I've, I think I've, I've done it all. I haven't, I've never tried polo. Okay. Right. There we go. We've got well, something you haven't tried. Yeah. Water polo. Yes. But not one of the horses. I like I've, I've done so many things. Horses, just a couple things scare me. Horses and snakes. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> well, there is something. So there is a little bit of fear still left in your life. And uh, we've done a little research ourselves on you and we have really enjoyed your story and and, and learning more about you and what you've overcome. So, but um, if, if you don't mind giving our listeners a, a little bit of a history and a background of what you've overcome and, and what kind of your goal is to continue on and what keeps you ticking. Absolutely. I guess uh, an abridged version would be I'm the only person in history to climb Mount Everest, to climb the highest mountain on every continent, ski to both the North and South Poles, and complete the world championship Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. But I happened to do it all after surviving two terminal cancers, a prognosis of three months to live, a prognosis of 14 days to live, a year-long coma, and with only one lung. So what, what, wow. <laughs> what, what gets me going and what keeps me going <clears throat> initially was inspiring people touched by cancer. You know, I, I was, I remember my, my first goal literally was to crawl eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom. So I wouldn't soil the sheets, you know, without too, getting too disgusting. You know, I was vomiting on myself and defecating in the bed because I couldn't move. I was in a medically induced coma for a year of my life. So my first goal was to crawl eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom and then to the top of the world, Mount Everest. It became the first cancer survivor to climb Everest. And I wanted to use that as the largest platform in the world to to scream hope 
but it's it's gone beyond the cancer the cancer family the cancer world granted yes every it seems like cancer is a global epidemic and everyone knows someone touched by the disease which is really unfortunate but it's gone gone beyond that into just everyday life you know people need that hope people need uh, to understand that we are where we are now because of all the seemingly mundane decisions we've ever made our entire lives in the past you know and and we need, we need to realize that if you want something different, do something different. And so many people need to see something's possible before they try it as well. You know, as you guys know, pole vaulting, you know, um, I think the guy still holds the record. Um, Buka, is that right? Actually, we have a phenom going on right now. He's breaking records left and right. His name's Mondo Duplantis. Um, so he's jumped, I think, four indoor world records and one outdoor world records, and he's 22. Wow. So, yeah. But everybody else does know Buka for sure. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'll have to check this guy out. Yeah. But I mean, people didn't think it was physiologically possible to do that. You know, and, and the, the, like the, the very the story that everybody knows, um, and I'm going to blank on his, his, his name, is the guy who ran the sub, the first sub four minute mile. Oh, yep, um, Roger Bannister. Bannister. Okay. Yep. exactly people thought it was like running that fast for that long would damage your internal organs you know it, it's just that simple mind tweak that people need it's just a different perspective on on your potential no absolutely and uh and that's such an inspirational story i mean what you've gone through most people we as athletes have gone through our own share of injuries but most people have no uh, no way to fathom the struggles and the time and the patience and the, and the perseverance that you've had to overcome both with cancers and the, the year-long induced coma. And, and I'm assuming the, the induced coma was to help you get through the treatments? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the, because no, no one has ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma before. So they just had no idea what was going to happen. The first cancer was when I was 13. The second cancer was when I was 16. So to kind of paint a picture, when my friends were getting ready for school, worried about the most uh, recent, you know, clothes, the the nicest hairstyles, being popular in, in the, the the popular cliques in in school, I was literally fighting for my life. So that became my mo. That became my my norm through my teen years. So when when someone's developing a perspective of of, of self. You know, myself was this 60 pound overweight troll who should be hidden from the world living under a bridge, you know, and sometimes I see that in the mirror still, but it's, it's that, that perspective that I've used to motivate myself because my pain has become my passion and my purpose, you know, but, but you're right. Some people don't see the struggle and the struggle isn't just over in a day. You know, I, I literally had to learn to breathe again. So the, to answer your question, I guess, kind of like a, the way a politician does in a roundabout way, they put me in a medically induced coma because the treatments were so harsh that they didn't want me to remember because no one had, they didn't have any idea what was going to happen. So my, my treatment cycle was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I would be released from the hospital to recover, you know, my, my, to, to grow my hemoglobin and red blood cells back higher. Then I go back in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be one cycle. And every time I was in the hospital, the doctors gave me something to not remember. But what's crazy is everywhere I go, I do my best to visit local hospitals and share my survivorship story with the patients. 
you know, and, and talk to the kids, talk to the teenagers, talk to the parents, talk to the adult. And the, the memory that's closest associated with scent, this, this, the smell is closest, close, most closely linked to memory. So I'll be in the hospital and I'll smell saline. And then all of a sudden I'll be, I'll have a flashback to, to me laying in the hospital that I, that I completely didn't remember at all, you know, from 20, 30 years ago. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, what was that about? But the reason they put me in the medically induced coma was because it was so harsh. They didn't want a 16 year old to, to remember any of it because it was so destructive and so damaging to my body. Yeah. You have really faced some dark demons compared to most anyone else. And through that, it seems like you've really developed this powerful perspective on life and, um, you know, everything that you've gone through is so inspirational. And with that being said, has that shaped how you view fear today? I would, I would say yes. You know, because we all have those dark demons. We all have, I, I call it, um, the gremlin, you know, they're, they're, they're usually four things that hold people back. It's the gate and it's the gales, G-A-I-L-S, the gremlins, the assumptions, the interpretations and the limiting beliefs, right? And the, the gremlin is the one that's most closely attached to your, your persona, to your, your, your emotions. And it's usually that voice saying, you know, you're not, you're not smart enough. You're, you're not strong enough. You're, you're, gonna lo- you're gonna lose your grip. If you're going pole vaulting on, on a weekend and it's moist outside, it's, it's raining, you know, your, your hands are gonna slip. It's all the negative chatter you hear. You know? And <clears throat> I've learned to actually deal with the gremlin by, I, I actually call him Cooper. <laughs> far, far out there, but I'm like, Cooper, listen, dude. You know, I, I know you were there at one point in my life to protect me. However, we both want the best for me, right? So why don't we work together to make it happen? And, and, and I learned that when I was probably 13, I was 60 pounds overweight, bald from head to toe on my hands and knees in the shower, weeping, you know, on my, just sobbing. And I remember the water was filling up in the bathtub or the, uh, the shower because my hair had fallen out all at once and it was clogging the drain so i had to pull the hair out of the drain so the water could go down and i remember that i didn't want to focus on not dying i wanted to focus on living so it's the same thing in life you know if whatever you're focused and your attention is on is where you're going to be drawn like a perfect example you're walking down the street and you're telling yourself don't trip don't trip you're you're gonna fall on your face but if you turn it around from a different perspective and you tell yourself, stand tall, walk strong. Same idea, same thing, but just a different perspective. And I, I can't even imagine what would have happened in my life if I focused on don't die, don't die. Yeah, the focus is such a strong, uh, strong proponent in sports psychology as well for athletes all the time. So what you're saying there, I mean, the, the traits definitely overlap. Life skills definitely overlap, and it doesn't have to be used in sports specifically. Um, and, and so that, that's something that's very uh, eye-opening to understand because we do, we get caught up in our daily lives. We get caught up on a, oh, I have to go to work versus I get to go to work, or I have to go to the grocery store versus I get to just 
buy food from a store versus just actually go go grow it or go you know kill it or <laughs> anything like that so uh yeah i i can relate that as well and we talk about that all the time with pole vaulting and trying to get the athletes to understand what is possible versus what is possibly not going to work out um, it does make a big difference. So, um, so from, from that, you, you said you were um, a track and field athlete as well as a swimmer in high school. What, what other sports did you do specifically in high school? And how did the cancers in between your high school years kind of affect those changes and challenges in your life? So in high school, I was, a, I was, I was the swim team. <laughs> oh nice <laughs> one like, man, one long one swim team <laughs> exactly right <laughs> the funny thing is we went to state and we didn't come in last you know we actually came in you know we we, we placed so, all right <laughs> well that was pretty funny we didn't even have a pool but i swam uss you know we went to nationals many times but swimming i ran cross country track i didn't do um i i went i was on the football team my eighth grade year but i focused more because it was it was the same same time as swimming i didn't want to get injured because swimming was my was my jam that was what i wanted um but the things the big ones were the endurance events swimming running uh track and running cross country uh and i honestly think sports played a huge part in my recovery and it was because <clears throat> whenever I was out of the hospital, I would push myself. So I had good days. I had bad days, good days and bad days. And I knew the bad days were going to pass. <clears throat> did, they, did they suck? Absolutely. You know, there were times I was vomiting for 36 hours straight. You know, it was so bad. And mom and dad actually installed, um, uh, what was it, in the, like an intercom system in our house. So they could always just listen in to when I was getting sick. So they could they could come to the bathroom and in, in, in my bedroom. But I remember when I was when I was feeling well, I would go and I would join the cross country team. I would join the track team, you know, and I would just put in whatever I could. It could be one lap as, as long as, as, as I was out there doing something. And I think that really helped my body recover more quickly than if I did nothing. So now when I'm in the mountains, when I'm training, my body recovers incredibly fast. You know, I, I had knee surgery um, December 31st. Five weeks later, I took a group up the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro, you know, in five weeks. But I think it's, it's all here and it's all what you do because human beings are a representation of repetition. So just constantly do something that's going to improve your life. Love that. And that makes me wonder. So you know, going from having that your first goal being to crawl eight feet from the hospital bed to climbing the highest mountain in the world. Um, that's huge. And that just shows that incremental process of goal setting and taking action on those goals. And I'm curious for you, was there an aha moment where I know we've talked about fear and the Gales perspective, um, where you were focusing on what you were afraid of to shifting that focus on the outcome that you wanted. So was there an aha moment? And to what extent was that a mental switch or a physical switch or an outside influence? You know, that, that's a great question. And um, um, I was thinking about it while you were talking. And the only thing that came to mind was when I was in grad school working on my master's from in, in doctorate for psychology. And I, I my 
my goal was to, I wanted to be a psycho-oncologist and I wanted to give back to the cancer community because I, everything that I've been through, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, an individual disease. You know, yes, you're doing your part. It's just, it's just like a, tra- a track team. You know, you're doing your individual events, but you're, you're, you're working together. Right. And it's very similar to cancer because I was going through it myself. Didn't mean that the family wasn't there supporting me. It didn't mean that we were working together for a common goal. So I remember <clears throat> when I was bartending at one of the largest clubs in Jacksonville, Florida, where I was working on my, my master's, and my doctorate in psychoanthology. And there, there, there was a night where this young lady comes up to the bar and she's like, can I have sex on the beach and your phone number? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and inside I'm thinking, yes, this is awesome. <laughs> but you know, on the outside, I'm playing it cool. I'm like, sure. You know, here's, here's your drink. And this happened for probably, I don't know, four or five times. And as you can imagine, at the end of the night, she comes up completely wasted she's like my friends left me can you take you can you take me home inside again I'm like yes oh my goodness and on the outside I'm playing it cool but uh I ended up going um putting her in the car taking her up over the intercoastal we were going up over the bridge and I got her address before before all this happened so that was look you know hindsight that was good because as we were coming down the bridge from the passenger side all I hear is Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. so, so I pull over as fast <laughs> as I possibly can. She opens the door. She gets like whatever demon is inside of her out. She closes the door. She ends up passing out. I get to her apartment complex, go to the other side. I pick her up and I carry her three flights upstairs. Right. And I have no idea who's behind this door. She has no keys, no nothing, no ID, nothing on her. So I've got this, this woman in my arms you know, and I'm, I'm holding her this lifeless limp of a human being and I'm kicking at the door, you know, pissed at this point, banging on the door with my foot. Somebody finally opens it up and I'm like, does she belong to you? And it's this, this little, and at the time, probably 20, 23 year old who was five, five foot, nothing, hundred pounds dripping wet. And she looks at me and she goes again. I was like, oh God, here we go. So I look inside and I put her on a Papa's on chair you know, which is like one of those half, half uh, round chairs that kind of dropped her there. And as I'm leaving, I look on the table, I see lines of cocaine, heroin needles, burnt spoons. And I'm like, this, this is not right. So that was my aha moment when I was driving home, thinking if I continue down this path without making decisions that are best for me, my life is going to end up there. Wow. And it was because I was, and looking back at it, it was probably because in my mind, when I, when I was sick, I had how many years of, of life taken from me? You know, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, to party. I wanted to have a great time because I didn't in high school. I, I, I tried in college and I had a wonderful time there too, but in just, I've never done any of that stuff. I never will. It's, it's just, if you do great, be careful. But I remember <laughs> driving home thinking, you know, where's my life going? And that was my aha moment where I was like, okay, I, I'm done. So I, I dropped out of school. I stopped working at the, the club. And that's when I started focusing on what I wanted for my life, not what other people wanted for me. Because I was being influenced by all the people down in Jacksonville, the people who had no idea about my background, who had no idea who I was, what I was trying to do with my life. 
So my aha moment almost got me caught up in the drug scene, in the party scene and everything else. But I decided consciously I wanted something different for my life. And I knew I was better than that. So I don't know if, if that answered your, yeah. your question because there was no aha moment in the chemo or the, the cancer, but later on in life, because afterwards, you know, I, I ignored the, the whole cancer thing. I didn't even think it was a part of my life, but anybody who goes through something traumatic, it, it affects you somehow on a core level. And you just have to figure out how you want it to affect you because you have a choice. No, absolutely. That's not expected there for the story. Um, <laughs> uh, but plot but twist. Something a lot. I think a lot of people who don't have any, uh, you know, experience with cancer or anyone in their family can can relate to that. The college scene and understanding where where life can go because there's a lot of uh, misdirection and misinformation about what's expected of your life and what to do. So that's that's uh, that's really a good piece of information. I hope a lot of people take it you know, take with them. But um, I do want to take one quick step back, I guess, from from your scenario back in recovering from cancer in sports in high school. How did you decide to go do sports in high school after having procedures, being 60 pounds overweight, um, you know, not having hair? Were you afraid? Was your team really supportive? Or, or how did you overcome saying, I want to be back in sports? I want to compete in sports despite everything I've gone through? You know, I... I don't think it ever crossed my mind to not do it, okay. to be honest, because I, I was a competitive swimmer. I think I started when I was five or six years old. You know, it was, it was in my genes. I was, um, even in, in fourth grade, I, I joined our local track team in, in quotes because we ran around the building, you know, it was <laughs> not really a competition. Um, and then seventh grade, and it was always in my family too. My dad played, he was the star quarterback. Um, as I mentioned before, my grandma pole vaulted. <laughs> like it was genes. So awesome. Um but I, I because I was an athlete leading up to the cancers, I think it was just something I wanted to do during and after because it was it was what I knew. You know, and I remember like I said, I, I still have swimming records from when I was a child. And when I was 60 pounds overweight, I, I had my Hickman catheter pulled early, which is a, a permanent IV that they stick in your chest. And now they have porta cats, they have a bunch of different things, but they, it was like a tube, like this snake that just came out of my chest. And I couldn't submerge myself in water because of the possibility of infection. So I had it pulled early. So it healed up. And I remember getting back in the water, just in my mind thinking I'm going to zip up and back, you know, up and down, up and down. But I, I jumped in the water. I felt like a hippo. I made it one lap and I could barely pull myself out of the water. You know, so that was just devastating coming from a guy who never got beat. I was undefeated to someone who could barely make it one lap down the water, down the pool. You know, but it, but it, it what kept ringing in my head was when I was younger and <clears throat> when you're younger, it's a 25 yard or 25 meters. So one lap down the pool. And when I finished my mom or my dad, one of them was always there to pull me out of the water. Right. And they were, they would grab my arms, just, you know, yank me up. And they would ask me, they would always ask me two questions. Did you do your best? And did you have fun? And it was never, Hey, you know, why didn't you beat Steve? You know, why, why didn't you, why didn't you beat the person next to you? 
it was always, did you have fun and did you do your best? Because they, they taught me at such a young age, I never had to be the best. I had to be my best. And by, by me becoming my own bar and me comparing myself to say the weekend before, trying to beat my time the, the weekend before, I ended up being the best. And I ended up having a great time because it, yes, I love the competition. I love the camaraderie, but it was about me improving myself day by day. So I think that came into it and I wanted to get back in the water. I wanted to get back into athletics because I love the camaraderie. I love the competition and, and I wanted to better myself. Yeah. And that's the really awesome thing about sports and especially something like swimming or track where your progress is so easily trackable. So you can measure that progress each weekend, each race, um, and truly see the improvement. So, you know, in an ideal world, you want to improve every weekend. How did you handle some weekends or, you know, different competitions where maybe you didn't run as fast as you, as you would have liked or swim as fast as you would have liked. Um, because from hearing your story, it sounds like, I know you've mentioned sports has played such a huge role in your recovery. Um, probably both for the physical aspect of pushing yourself along with the mental aspect of chasing towards a goal. Um, so yeah, I guess, how did you handle maybe the ebbs and flows of competition and performance where maybe you're not always constantly improving. Well, I mean, <laughs> there, there were times when I'd touch the wall and, you know, I'd, I'd have that temper tantrum like everybody else. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, you, you become embarrassed about it. You know, touching the wall, grabbing my goggles, throwing them across the deck, making a spectacle of myself. And then, and then realizing in the moment, I was like, oh God, everyone's looking at me. I, that, that's awful. But over time, realizing that, and I don't think it, it happened until later, but everybody, there, there's this term mindfulness that everybody's talking about. And it's, it's, it's so true that if you don't, if you initially start paying attention to, hey, you know, my ears are getting hot, you know, I'm getting a little um, agitated inside, that then in turn comes out as, you know, F this, you know, you get pissed off because you, you weren't, you weren't. You weren't happy with your performance, but if you understand that your thoughts then lead to your actions and you're conscious of your thoughts and what you're actually thinking and how you're feeling, you can control that, you know, and, and you can, you can, you can go back home and do it in private. <laughs> That's fine, but don't, don't be a spectacle. And, and I think that it really taught me again, going back to my parents to be a good winner and a gracious loser. So when I did have those times where I didn't perform well, I, I just, I, I knew, you know, it was an opportunity to figure out why I didn't perform better. As opposed to getting angry at the performance itself, at myself, I, I tried to look back and figure out what went wrong or where, not, what, not necessarily what went wrong, where I could improve. You know, could it be the turn? Could, did I slip here? Did I not, did I not train hard? Did I not go to bed? You know, using, utilizing the compound effect, what happened leading up to that point, figuring out what it was and then making sure it didn't happen again. No, I, I relate very, very much to that as a coach and an athlete. I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, my parents as well, you know, do your best, have fun. That was always their message. And I was the one that wanted to be good at sports. I was the one myself. I was like, I need to do this. And as a coach, I look at athletes and I say, 
are their parents pressuring them to be so good? And if they are, when are they going to potentially lose the joy, you know, to find that success in their own athleticism? Because the, the joy also is what fuels life, you know, fuels the understanding of sports and, and trying to achieve something different. Without that joy, it becomes uh, frustration more than anything. And so that perspective is wonderful. Um, we're going we're gonna to shift gears just a little bit. So your goals and your perspectives that you learn from sports, then all of a sudden conquered mountains. <laughs> so these are pretty, pretty big goals that people, you know, okay, well, yeah, I, I can go try and win a basketball game and I can be a state champion or something. No, I'm going to climb every single mountain in each or the highest Right, not just one mountain. Yeah, every single a mountain in the largest mountain in each continent across the world and then tackle the North and South Pole. So, so where does this interest in climbing mountains spark from, uh, especially one in every continent? You know, I, I think the first one was Everest. And I figured if I could make that, the rest would be downhill. You know, in all honesty, it goes back to when I was in grad school. And that's when I, like I said, I dropped out and I started focusing on something to give back to the cancer community. Initially, I kept thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. And I came up with the, the, the crazy idea of maybe running from LA to New York and stopping in, in hospitals along the way. And then I, I realized, you know, that that's probably just, that's too much running. That's it's gonna take too long. It's like, screw that, I'll find something else. But I kept thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know this is going to sound really weird when I say it, but logically, um, it Everest came up. <laughs> I guess it literally is the largest platform in the world. And I did some research and found that no cancer survivor had made it up there before. No cancer survivor had tried. So I figured if someone's going to do it, why not me? Why not for the right reasons? You know, using it to give back. Because I, I, I firmly believe that if, if you have passion and purpose, you can find your meaning. And when you have those underlying meanings about what you're doing, you, you have a greater chance of, of making, uh, making it up there. You have a greater chance of success. So for example, I, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year and our success rate is double the average of the mountain. And it's because I tell people, you're not gonna conquer the mountain, you conquer yourself. Because if it's you versus mother nature, she's gonna kick your butt every time. I don't care who you are, she's taking you down you learn that it's, it's more of, it's not an expedition, it's an inspiration, right? It's an inward journey through an outward adventure. And that's what it's been through all these mountains. And when I got to the, the summit of Everest, I actually had a flag that was probably maybe three feet by two feet. They had names of people touched by cancer. And I had it always folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart as a reminder of why I was there. And then when I made it to the top, I unfurled this flag and wrapped it around. <clears throat> there's a, a, a stake up there, wrapped it around the top of the world, commemorating the struggle of cancer patients worldwide. And then after that, I did the same thing on each of the seven continents. So I've always had a deeper purpose and meaning behind what I'm doing. And each one of the seven continents has a flag in the North and South Poles, had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer. So it's, it's almost like everything I've been doing is an homage to people touched by cancer. Like I said, giving them hope. And on the flag, it actually says hope. And on the bottom, it says dedicated to all those affected by cancer in this small world, keep climbing. Wow. So how was that message received by, you know, those that you were representing climbing up these mountains and how did it affect you? And did it also inspire you to continue pursuing other journeys and adventures? Oh, absolutely. It's, 
excuse me, it's it's been received really well. You know, I've I've, I've become a uh, an international keynote speaker. I've worked with Google, IBM, Unilever, Merrill Lynch, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Transamerica, a bunch of of corporations around the world. And every time they bring me in for presentation, I ask them for local connections to hospitals. So I mentioned that earlier, going in and talking to the patients. So I think it's it's worked out really well. And I have had people send me messages saying that it's changed their lives. Uh, the, the best one I can I can think of is what whenever you're going through life, there's there's always a moment where you're questioning what you're doing. Like, why am I doing this? You know, for me, it's 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 incredibly emotional seeing a 14-year-old battling Hodgkin's lymphoma, laying in a hospital bed, swollen up 60, 70 pounds, fighting for his life. You know, it's, it's like looking into a mirror, but it's also very cathartic when I talk to him and I hear his, his hope coming back. You know, and, and like I said, there was a moment when I, I got done giving a presentation um, <clears throat> and there was a, a queue of people lined up to talk to me. And you know, I, I love hearing pe other people's stories because we all have a story. You know, we all see the world a little bit differently. And I, I love that. There was a lady next in line and I could see that she'd been crying. You know, her mascara had been running down her face and she, she came up to me and she literally latched on. She buried her face in my chest and she lost it, you know, just sobbing. And I'm sitting there trying to hold back my tears because I don't want to cry in front of her too. Because I, I wanted to be strong for her. And she leans back, she composes herself, leans back. And she told me that um, in the past six months, her son passed away from cancer. Her husband passed away from cancer and she got diagnosed for the third time with cancer, right? So wow. she was really struggling. And she told me that she, she convinced herself to go to one more presentation at the conference and it happened to be mine. And she also continued telling me that she had in her, in her hotel room, pills and alcohol and a suicide note. So she told me that because that she heard my story and what I went through and the struggle that, that I, I, I pursued through, she told me that I saved her life. Wow, that's, that's unreal. That's, I mean. You, it doesn't get more impactful than that. Yeah, it doesn't get more impactful than that. That's something to hear is so, so powerful. And, and, and again, as I can relate to, to coaching, it's like you try to help give people something to hold on to something to give them direction to keep them away from you know whether it's going down that path or just going down a path that leads them somewhere away from being helpful for themselves or for others and yeah it's it's it definitely leaves you a little bit speechless when you first hear something like that because to have that touch your life uh, personally and then i'm sure it's happened at least once or twice every uh, every year every time you get to talk sharing your story is, is so impactful that way and that's uh, it does it does bring me to the next point about your your books. You've been able to write a couple books along the way, um, and you and you still have a couple more coming out. So keep climbing is was your first one, correct? Yes, yeah, that was the hardback. I think you can get on a, it's called a strip and rebind on Amazon. Uh, it's called Keep Climbing: How I Beat Cancer and Reach the Top of the World. Uh, the second one is I actually have it here somewhere. Yeah, here we go. Disappeared. The second one is called Being Unstoppable, Conquering Your Everest. See if, that, if you can see it. Yeah. Uh, maybe kind of. Well, there, there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but it's, I, I decided to, to put together almost like logical steps, utilizing habit stacking. Because going, going back to what you're saying, you know, in, inspiring people is great. 
motivating people is, is fantastic. But if you can empower someone to find their own path, to empower someone to find their own reasons, to, to help them figure it out on their own, that's where you can change someone's life. Absolutely. So if, if you're working with say a kid and, and the, 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 the seven-year-olds trying to figure out a puzzle and then you, you help them and finish it themselves. You know, it's, he's proud of it or she, you know, that the child's proud of it, but there's no ownership. But if you can empower that child to figure it out and have ownership of it, then it's, it's just astronomically different. So that's what being unstoppable is about. It's, it's helping people utilize their own personal core values to find their own path to empowerment. So I'm not telling people, hey, you know, do this and this, and that's going to be your result. You know, figure out what you want, which is C. And then based on that in your personal core values, you can then utilize and figure out what you, how to do that with your A and B. So if you know what C is, you can figure out A and B to get it. But that's where you empower someone to do it. And that's, that's kind of what being unstoppable is about because it, it took what I utilized going through my first goal of crawling eight feet to the, to the bathroom to climbing to the top of the world. And it's, it's, a, it's a logical habit stacking step-by-step process. Yeah, so in addition to that, um, you know, with your entire life story and from writing the books, so you're sharing the message through a book, you're sharing your message through climbing a mountain, taking action, really walking the walk, literally. Um, what advice do you have in addition to um, kind of what you've already mentioned, but just as far as someone who may be searching for um, that purpose or that will to live, um, what is the first step or the next step for them in kind of discovering their path? You know, I think <clears throat> before you know, before you figure out where you want to go, you have to know where you are. And you have to, I actually put together what's called a root assessment, right? So you have to ask yourselves, who am I? What means most to me? And in that root assessment then comes a, a, a core values assessment where I, and I, I couldn't find one online. I couldn't find one anywhere. So I, I created my own. It's like, okay, well, I can't find it. I'm going to make my own. So I have a list of 60 different core values. And if you guys want one, shoot me an email. I'll, I'll send Absolutely. it to you. Absolutely. Yeah, um, it's 60 different values. And I have people take 10 of those, right? Those become your personal core values. And that's usually where people stop with their value, core value assessments. So like, okay, this is what I value most. This is great. This is what I'm going to focus on. But I take it a step further where you rank on a, on a scale of one to 10, how you're actually living the value. And I love that, Megan, that you said, um, you know, walk in the talk because that's where I want you to, to do. That's what I want you to do is say you have family as one of your top personal core values, mm -hmm. but you, and you have to be honest with yourself. Say in the first time I took it, I wrote down that I was living family at a four out of 10. I mean, that was, okay, shocking. Yeah. you know, that was completely eye-opening knowing that family who means everything to me and I'm not really living it. Yeah. So that's now, interesting. Yeah. So now, you know, exactly where you want to start putting your energy and focus. And now you can figure out exactly what means most to you. And based on that, you can start moving forward on your own path. 
you know, get off, get off social media, stop, stop idolizing other people, figure out what you want, what matters to you, because we have what almost 8 billion people on the planet. We all have different set of genes. We all have different set of, of purpose. I love that. And, um, it just sounds like that is such a great resource to really do a deep dive into discovering your passions that you already know exist, but actually, you know, having them surface and having your actions align with them. And I'm glad that you mentioned social media because I was thinking that as well. Um, I think that in today's world, it's really easy to kind of block out what you truly want and to get so caught up in the busy day-to-day that maybe a lot of people don't take the time that it needs just to reflect. And maybe it's just a couple minutes set aside every morning or night, but I think that it's difficult to find your own um, voice and passions and pursue you pursue your own path rather than just kind of try to follow someone else. So I, I love that as a resource and we'll definitely be checking it out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about that because, you know, how many people do you know who wake up in the morning, the first thing they do is grab their phone? Yeah. And it might be because that's their alarm, but if, if it's not, you, you know, if it is your alarm, you can buy an alarm that, that costs 12 bucks, you know, buy, buy a cheap clock, you know, put your phone somewhere else at night. But so many people, they either wake up, they grab their phone, start mindlessly scrolling through social media, or they turn on the TV and watch the news. So the instant you do that, in the first 15 minutes of waking up, you're programming your brain and how your day is going to go. And most people are being programmed as opposed to programming. Right. So they're allowing that into their minds by other people. I mean, it's, we're inundated with it our entire lives, commercials, social media, new, every day. But if you wake up in the first 15 minutes and as opposed to doing something negative and comparing yourself, and as you were saying earlier, you know, I have to do this. I need to do that. I should do this. I should do that. I should do this. Well, first stop shooting on yourself, right? <laughs> Take a step back. Like, look, this is the stuff I want to do. This is the stuff I get to do. So in the first 15 minutes, write down a value affirmation that goes back to support one of your personal core values that you're trying to build. So, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, whatever it is for you. And I write down three things that I, I want to do that day. And then three things I want to learn that day. And then in the evening, I write down five things that I'm grateful for. And I journal about one of them. And as opposed to waking up in the morning and grabbing your phone, going through social media, being influenced by others. And as opposed to going to bed at night, watching the news, going on your, your phone again, being influenced by others. That way you're bookending your day on a negative note. But if you start your day on a positive note and end your day on a positive note, over time, you will notice through uh, what's called neuroplasticity that you're actually building different synaptic connections in your brain to be positive. You're basically programming your brain as opposed to it being programmed for you. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Love that note as well. Megan is a little bit better at writing notes down than I am. I I do just kind of get on a whim in my brain and go with it. But uh, um, we do we do try to keep learning and keep growing and putting ourselves outside of our comfort zones. Um, One of my favorite things to say is our success is usually found on the outside of our comfort zones. And, uh, and waking up in the morning and put it staying in your comfort zone, almost just like you said, sets, sets the tone for the entire day. And, uh, and so changing that, changing that pattern and focusing on what we want 
individually and or what our families want is way better than just saying, okay, well, how do I see what somebody else is doing and what someone else wants me to see? So I do, I do really enjoy that. We, uh, we've also got this thing called Koga where we, we drink <laughs> coffee and, and do yoga together in the sunlight and keep our phones away. So um, yeah, so it's something, something we try to do differently to make sure we stay away from the emails and the phones right away early in the morning. So speaking of that, thanks again for hopping on 7.30 talking to us here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love this and it, it, it's funny because you, you guys were married you said just over a year my wife and I we've been married just over three years and we told each other that when we got married we would never stop dating each other so every Thursday night is date night phones down it's just us you know we're, we're doing something last night we went out to uh, uh, to dinner we went to a uh, local um, winery had some wine came home watched a movie that was our date night. Sometimes we'll go camping. Sometimes we'll, you know, just walk around, whatever it is. It's just us. And that's, that's date night. Thursday night's date night. Love that. And that obviously aligns with what you mentioned earlier is family being one of your top passions. Um, so, and with that, so you sound like you are in a wonderful place um, in life and are truly living it to the fullest. I love how you have shaped your life to really be truly unique and absolutely incredible um, in everything that you've overcome and everything that you've accomplished. And with something like that, do you have your sights set on anything next or are you currently working on any projects? I am. And uh, it's kind of funny because when I first got married, people would ask me, well, what's next? And jokingly, I would say, well, I just got married. I heard that's pretty difficult, that's a <laughs> difficult adventure, <laughs> but I'm, I'm heading back to Kilimanjaro again for my 23rd trip up the mountain in July. Wow. And we, we've turned it into, like I said, an inspiration. And it literally, ah, look at that. It literally is the ultimate life climb. Um, and uh, I'm turning it also into, I don't, have you seen the film, uh, The Weight of Gold? I have not. I don't think I have either. You should check it out because it's um, Michael Phelps is the commentator, the narrator, and it's it's about people who are in athletics and they train, you know, their entire lives for potentially eighteen seconds. Oh yeah. Right. And you're they're they're in the limelight. They have the attention. They're in the spot. They have all of this, and then all of a sudden they come home. And the weight of gold really holds them down because now all that's gone. There's, they, they don't have a regimented training system. They don't have any of that stuff. And a lot of people, you know, for myself, I reached the North Pole, completion of the Explorer's Grand Slam, seven summits, two poles, which sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter. But um, <laughs> when I came home, I got depressed. You know, I've been working on this, this tremendous right. goal for how many years? I was like, okay, well, now what do I do? You know, people who come home who are very successful uh, athletes do the same thing. You know, I'm sure you, you, you've experienced too. You, you go to a, a giant meet, nationals, whatever it might be. You come home and like, oh man, that was great. But you kind of get into this funk. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when it's at a high level, they, they, they attempt suicide. So what I want to do is I want to utilize the mountain and the analogies and metaphors on the mountain. They relate very well to life, to real life. And I want them to, to be used on the mountain to help them with that transition, to help them with their personal core values. Because who you were when you're an athlete and what you value as an athlete might be a little different. And they don't know that. 
They just need to find something else to focus on, to put their energy and attention on. So I want to utilize the mountain to help athletes and, and other folks who are going through that transition because, you know, you're here, this is where you want to be. No one's helping with that in between. Right. So that's one thing I want to do. Another one in the next three, next two years, I want to run what's called the Marathon de Sables, which is a, a six-day marathon across the Sahara in Morocco. And then I want to climb an 8,000-meter peak, uh, which is 26,000 feet, only 14 of them in the world. Um, and I want to attempt that. It's called Cho Oyu. And I want to attempt that without oxygen, just to see if it's possible to push the body into the death zone without supplemental oxygen with one lung. Then if I do that, I want to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days and then continue the training. And in 2024, if everything goes well, attempt Everest again without supplemental oxygen with one lung. Wow. I want to know how your body can handle all of this training and pursuing everything. Yeah. I mean... That it's, it's, is incredible, but it, but it's amazing. Like we, we're all capable of it. And you guys know this just as, just as well as I do. And as well as anybody else does, it's amazing how mental being physical is. Yeah. And, and the mind breaks way before the body should, or the way before the body does. So I know what true pain feels like, like by going through the cancers, I know what true yeah. pain feels like by pushing my body to the extreme, you know, and I know I can, I can always take one step further. I know I can push my body a little. It's not going to break. I'm not going to die. Well, I guess I could die, but (laughs) you know, I'm I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I know I'm going to die. So would you say that, you know, with your past and having overcome two cancers has almost become an advantage for you and your mentality and overcoming those physical seemingly limitations? Absolutely. I think on a number of different levels, because not only do I know what pain is, and not only do I know what my passion and purpose are, I know what struggle feels, truly feels like. But when I was 13, I'm, I'm also a huge believer in, in the mind-body connection and vivid visualization. And I'm sure you guys know all about this too, because what if you utilize vivid visualization properly, the brain doesn't know the difference between that and reality. So for me, I started this when I was 13 years old and I I don't know where I picked it up. I just, maybe I was bored, but I visualized myself in my body in a microscopic spaceship. Remember I'm 13 years old, crazy imagination. So in this microscopic spaceship, I was zipping around my body and sneaking up on the cancer cells and unloading like lasers and and bombs and stuff like that laden with chemotherapy. Wow. So essentially destroying the, the cancer from the inside out. And I also visualized myself swimming and touching the, like every night I would touch, I would picture myself touching the wall, coming in first, you know, looking back left, right, and seeing people half a lap behind me. And then I did the same thing on Everest where I literally pictured myself every night when I was training, taking those last say three steps where I would hear the styrofoam sound of the snow crunching under my feet. I would smell the ozone. I would feel the radiation on my face, but I would take it further and have an emotional attachment to the end result. That's where it becomes real. You know, what does that mean to me? It's, it's, it's just like life. You know, it's, it's not the new car. It's not the new house. And for a lot of guys, it's not the new wife that's going to bring you happiness. 
You know, it's, it's happiness is an internal job. So it's not what the mountain represents. It's not the mountain, it's not the peak, it's what it represents to you. So what does that mean? So on, on the summit of Everest, I pictured myself so many times with that emotional attachment to the end result, it became so real when I was up there actually taking those steps. It was almost like deja vu. Unbelievable. That's, that's it. I can relate so much just hearing from studies of people who get injured, you know, you see atrophy come on and, and people will say, oh, visualize, if you can visualize yourself exercising with both legs, even if you exercise with just one leg, you'll, you'll delay and, and limit atrophy on the injured leg. Um, and people have come back from injuries that way a whole lot faster. Um, and that's such a powerful mindset. It, it gave me chills when you talked about um, having a spaceship and, and shooting lasers with your cancer <laughs> yeah. cells. Uh, my father has Parkinson's, so so it relates a little bit there, just mentally kind of a, the body attacking itself, but understanding how you do have abilities to help your own body out, whether uh, whether it's just thinking about it or truly putting your brain into a position to, to be a powerful asset for you, not against you. And uh, and I think that's a huge message here, um, which, which definitely means a lot to me. So thank you again for sharing. Um, it's really, really cool. So I guess, um, I feel pumped up and like ready to take on the day. I'm so glad we started the morning with this. Let's go. That's great. I, I love that. She said that the, your, your brain's working with you as opposed to against you and going back, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes ago, that's Cooper. Cooper. That's that's the little gremlin. I yeah. call my gremlin Cooper. You know, that's Cooper in my brain or your brain, your gremlin working against you. Like, listen, we need to work together. And if you can start paying attention, if you're mindful of all those little things, you can start to control them and work work harmoniously together, I suppose. You know, it's, it's not like those voices in your head where they're gonna stick you in a padded room with a, a tight jacket, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, that you can... voice that that nagging voice that that holds you back. Yeah. Yeah, knowing that you have control over over Cooper and, and, and you can actually change the the scenario in your own brain, which makes a big difference. So that's a that's a beautiful message. Yeah, uh, a beautiful message that I think a lot of people can learn from and and really just like you say, change their own life and they have the ability to figure it out themselves and empower themselves to make their own choices and, and feel like they're in control versus just along the path. Absolutely. Not, not everyone's going to climb Everest, but everyone has an Everest to climb. We all have mountains to go up and your Everest might be literally walking around the block. And that's fine. Whatever it is for you, just find some, some happiness in that and go pursue it, go do it. Stop asking questions like, Oh, I'm not sure I can stop questioning yourself. Just go take that first step. Yeah. That's a great, great piece of advice. We've gotten so many awesome tools here just to set our listeners up for success as well. And just to leave this podcast feeling extremely inspired and ready to take on any challenges that they might face. Um, and so with that, just closing out here, um, I know that you've, you've got some books out there, but for our listeners out there who may want to continue to follow your journey, where would be the best place for them to find you online or learn more about you? Yeah, my first first name, last name.com, SeanSwarner.com. You know, Sean spelled the proper way, the Irish way, S-E-A-N. <laughs> and Swarner, just like the Warner Brothers, but just slap an S on the front. Awesome. All right. 
Anything else? Last last note. What what can you say that sport fuels in your life? Wow. What does sport fuel in my life? I would say sport fuels my life. <laughs> doesn't get better than that. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get better than that. Well, Love to Sean, hear it. yeah, thank you again so much for joining us and sharing your inspirational story. Um, we can't wait to hear what Thursday night date night brings next week. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, enjoy, enjoy the, uh, enjoy the Kilimanjaro trip. Do you do that trip every year? Every year. Yep. Every year. Wow. Is uh, what month every year? Does it change or? We usually do it in the summer so teachers can go, you know, because they have the summers off. But we just recently, for proof of concept, took a group up in February. They were CEOs, they were athletes, they were influencers, and they couldn't stop talking about it because it changed their life so much. So we're going to start doing two a year, I think. Wow. Maybe we can put that on our bucket list. I was just going to say 2025. (laughs) Let's do it. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Sean. Enjoy <laughs> yeah, the rest thank of your you. day and, uh, and the weekend. And we hope all the best for you. We'll be following you along on, on Everest for sure. I appreciate it. Thank you both too. And, and good luck. Thank you. thank you. We'll see ya. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. If you like this episode, please subscribe and consider leaving us a review so others can find us more easily. It really means a lot to us and it helps us get the word out. We're always looking for new stories to share here on our show. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tell us their story by nominating them on our website at sportfeelslife.com. Thanks for listening.